wherever on the globe his eyes were turned, would have found no area immune from the effects of the contest. Every factory in Europe and America hummed by night and day to prepare the materials of strife. The economic problems of five continents had been transformed. The life of the remotest villages had suffered a strange metamorphosis. Far away, English hamlets were darkened because of air raids. Little farms in the Touraine, in the Scottish Highlands, in the Apennines, were untilled because there were no men. Armenia had lost half her people. The folk of North Syria were dying of famine. Indian villages and African tribes had been blotted out by plague. Whole countries had ceased for a moment to exist except as geographical names. Such were but few of the consequences of the kindling of war in a world grown too expert in destruction, a world where all nations were part of each other. Welcome to John Buchan Unbound for this, our final episode in a mini-series on John Buchan and the First World War. I'm Ursula Buchan, John Buchan's granddaughter and his latest biographer. We have started off with this striking retrospective view of the war from Buchan's own account of the conflict, a history of the Great War. The war had appeared in it, as he said later in his memoirs, Memory Hold the Door, as a gigantic cosmic drama embracing every quarter of the globe and the whole orbit of man's life. And in this final episode, we're going to explore Buchan's retrospective view of the First World War, contained in Memory Hold the Door. Hello there, I'm Michael Redley, a historian interested in Buchan and in his time. In our previous episodes, we focused on his four novels with as their setting the war and its aftermath. The 39 Steps in 1914, Green Mantle in 1916, Mr. Stanfast in 1917-18, and The Three Hostages in 1923-4. We might have left it there, if nearly 20 years after the First World War and in the shadow of another, Buchan hadn't provided a remarkable summary of his experiences in the war and his thoughts about it. He had invested so much in the war, as we've seen, as both a novelist and a memorialist. So how did he come to look upon it in retrospect, the most important event of his lifetime and its significance for his own generation and their children and grandchildren, including me? We'll be concentrating to start with on the background to the book, and then we'll consider Memory Hold the Door itself. But to give the context to the book, we'd better begin, hadn't we, with a brief account of Buchan's life after the Great War. OK, I'll start. Through the success of his wartime novels, Buchan became an established and popular novelist. His success made him the envy of other writers, not surprisingly, but he was never part of a coterie, probably because he didn't entirely buy in to the modernism that was sweeping the literary world in the 1920s. Without any inherited money, he needed to earn the means to keep the household at Ellsfield Manor in Oxfordshire going, and in the 1920s he continued to work for Thomas Nelson, the publishers, while writing popular novels which sold well compensating for the little he received from his memorial volumes, such as his histories of the Royal Scots Fusiliers and the South African forces during the Great War. 
But there was so much else going on apart from the writing, wasn't there, Michael? Very much so. As a figure at the centre of wartime propaganda, Buchan's services were much in demand as a publicist and a promoter of good causes. The League of Nations Union, for example, and political education of the new mass democracy which came into existence after the First World War. Buckham began to develop new strands of more serious historical writing, which he very much cared about, both historical novels and carefully researched biographies, starting with a favourite historical character of his own, the 17th century Scottish royalist, the Marquis of Montrose, and moving on then to Oliver Cromwell, Sir Walter Scott and the Emperor Augustus. He identified very strongly with the movement to make history well-written and accessible so that it would be more widely read. By the early 1930s, he'd emerged then as a public figure well-regarded in Britain's intellectual life. And his position became even more established, of course, when he did finally enter Parliament in 1927 as Member of Parliament for the Scottish Universities. The penniless son of a manse in the south side of Glasgow also became an admired ceremonial figure, serving twice as Lord High Commissioner to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland as the King's representative, and writing the popular history of King George V for his jubilee in 1935, which was given as a souvenir to schoolchildren all over Britain and in the Empire. And there are plenty of second-hand copies of that still around as a result. And that was also the year he was appointed Governor-General of Canada as Lord Tweedsmuir and began to devote himself to developing Canada's image in the eyes of both Canadians and the world. He proved immensely popular in Canada and influential as the representative of opinion in the Dominion over the abdication of Edward VIII in December 1936. He also encouraged the newly crowned George VI and Queen Elizabeth to come to Canada on their first major visit abroad on the eve of the war in 1939. Buchan forged an important friendship with the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, which bore fruit during the Second World War, and he was still at the height of his powers when he suffered a stroke and embolism, which killed him aged only 64 in February 1940. Extraordinary how young he was when he died, really, when you think how much he did. Anyway, that's his personal history. But if we consider the wider background, it's hardly controversial to say that the interwar years were a time of enormous change in all areas of British life. The rise of the Labour Party and the eclipse of the Liberals and the failed attempt to restore Britain to its pre-war economic eminence, followed by the World Depression, altered everything. In the 1930s, Britain was in many ways two countries, with regions of the old Victorian industries suffering mass unemployment, while areas in which new industries flourished, generally in the Midlands and South, experiencing some growth and prosperity. But it really wasn't a country fit for returning heroes, was it, Michael? No, it was not. So and, how, and... Did, how did Buchan view it? Well, he was under no illusion as to the seriousness of Britain's situation brought about by the war. In memory hold the door, he, he put it this way. He said, The vastest disordering since the breakdown of the Pax Romana must be followed by decades of suffering and penury. 
Many familiar things had gone, and much more would go. Britain had lost for good her old security in the world, and like other peoples, she would have to struggle to preserve stability at home. Now, stability at home is where Buchan focused his main efforts. Integration and cohesion depended on fortifying the centre of British politics, and that's why Buchan supported Stanley Baldwin, Conservative leader from 1923, in his zeal to promote the Labour Party, which represented the newly enfranchised working classes to the heart of parliamentary politics in place of the Liberals. He was also co-founder of a College of Citizenship, which was which was Baldwin's own brainchild, actually, deploying adult education to weaken the grip of socialism with its stoking of class conflict, as he saw it, and fostering leadership for the political centre for Britain, which would represent all classes in society in the future. It was a kind of utopian vision in some in some ways, yeah. very idealistic in in its own in in its own particular way. Yeah, and Button um, really bought into Baldwin's vision, really, didn't he? And but Baldwin was succeeded by Neville Chamberlain, of course, in yeah. 1937. Yeah. And my impression has always been that Buckham viewed Chamberlain rather differently. Well, well, he was a firm supporter of Chamberlain's social reforms when he was Minister of Health in the 1920s. Buchan also accepted, in the end, his tariff reform beliefs, which he had opposed in his younger days, recognising the, for the 1930s that they would help actually help to maintain employment in hard-pressed communities facing foreign competition. Buckham was also a leading proponent of raising the school leaving age to 15, of which Chamberlain approved. But he was less convinced, I think, by Chamberlain's handling of the European dictators through the policy called appeasement. Buckham also became a friend and sounding board of Ramsay MacDonald, who was expelled from the Labour Party in 1931 when he became Prime Minister in the National Government. Baldwin considered it vital for the work of strengthening the political centre that MacDonald should continue in office, and Buchan helped to keep him going. Yeah, very important. And it was a, a, an act of kindly charity, really, for MacDonald was rather a sad and isolated character in his later years, wasn't he? Well, well, I think I, I think as much. I mean, it, it certainly had a charitable purpose, but there was real politique behind it. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, these days we think of the 1930s principally as the decade which saw the rise of fascism in Europe. Although partly through the strength of centrism in Britain, it never put down effective roots here. No, and Buchan himself personally detested and feared the dictators. He, he said, did, yeah. he, didn't he? He, yeah. he said in memory, hold the door, I quote, the gutters have exuded a poison which bids fair to infect the world. And what is more, Buchan had many Jewish friends, not least Leopold Amory, who had promoted the Jewish cause as colonial secretary in the 1920s. Yeah, and, and it's, I think it's important to remember that Buchan spoke at Jewish rallies and fundraisers, and he drew attention to the plight of Jews in Germany from early in 1933 in Parliament. 
just after Hitler became chancellor and a time when little was being said publicly about mm. the whole question of what was happening to Jews already in, in Germany. Very little was being said publicly in Britain about that. And his novel, A Prince of the Captivity, which was published in the same year, has been called the first popular British anti-Nazi novel. All this, I guess, makes it not surprising, really, that his name, Buchan's name, appeared on a 1938 Nazi blacklist. Yeah, and, and you know, if he'd invaded Britain, they'd have rounded him up. Apparently, it was because of what the Nazis called pro-Jewish activities. Yet you will still sometimes see Buchan bracketed with anti-Semites, in whose company he emphatically does not belong. This canard arose because of some disobliging comments about Jews in his novels. But Buchan used contemporary attitudes and expressions to make his characters appear real. You wouldn't surely expect an accomplished propagandist to do anything else. But they were assumed attitudes rather than his own voice. And you do have to ask why so many prominent Jews, not least Chaim Weizmann, Israel's first president, would consider Buchan a good friend of the Jews if he wasn't. It really doesn't make any sense. Certainly hard to see it. Take a break from your detective work, Buchan fans, because we've got something exciting to share with you. John Buchan was an important figure in the first half of the 20th century, a well-connected politician and statesman, an admired historian, as well as an incredibly successful novelist. If this podcast makes you want to know more, the John Buchan Society, which supports John Buchan Unbound, is inviting you to join the great adventure. The Society has been pioneering the study of John Buchan for more than 40 years, hosting friendly and lively meetings and seminars, and producing a journal reporting research into the many different aspects of this diverse amazing man. And if you happen to find yourself dramatically hanging out of a train and passing peebles in Scotland, check out the John Buchan Story Museum, where you can find everything you would want to learn about the man and his books. So, to hear more about the Society and join in the adventure, visit www.johnbuchansociety.co.uk and become part of Buchan's story yourself. Now, let's get back to the action. Welcome back. We're looking in this episode at John Buchan's book of reminiscences, Memory Hold the Door, concentrating on his reflections on the Great War. But it needs saying that the book is richly descriptive of Buchan's life and times in all its aspects, with dozens of insightful portraits of people he had known, which are still sometimes quoted in modern historical studies. Particularly his comments about Lord Milner, actually. They've appeared again and again in many different studies and in many different places. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it's also an elegy for a world which was about to vaporise in the heat of another world war. As he put it, I realised that we were at the point of contact between a world vanishing and a world arriving, and that such a situation was apt to crush those who had to meet it. The book appeared in 1941 the year after his death, and was issued in the US under the rather better title, I think, Pilgrim's Way, which makes an interesting link with one of the novels we've looked at in this series, Mr. Standfast. Perhaps if I could just stick up for, for the, the title, as I suspect he himself chose, Memory Hold the Door. The, the title, I think, is taken from a poem by 
Robert Louis Stevenson, one of Buchan's favorite poets of of his youth, a poem called Our Lady of the Snows. And it's a lovely poem, and one can see why Buchan might have wanted to celebrate it, because it is itself a celebration of active life. And as he wrote his biography and reflected on what he'd written, it seems that that he might well have wanted to emphasize that part. There's a couple of lines in there. For those he loves who underprop, with daily virtues, heaven's top. That seems to me, in a way, to su- summarize what Buchan valued in, in public life and what he himself, I think, had, had tried to supply. So are we then looking in the title, Memory Hold the Door, at something that Buchan himself very personally believed in? I believe we are. So, so that's, my, that's my thought anyway. Well, fair, fair enough, Michael. Perhaps you've convinced me. I'm not quite sure. I just think that um, even when it came out, it felt a bit obscure, whereas Pilgrim's Way was was much more obvious. But anyway, there we are. <laughs> enough. That aside, at a time when those working against US isolationism were again highlighting transatlantic affinities, Memory Hold the Door had a particular importance, which was the chapter often focused on at the time in Buchan's book, entitled My America. Yeah, very, very important since it came out in 1941, so during the war. Absolutely. And not long, really, before America did actually enter the war. Yeah. I think think we may have made Memory Hold the Door sound like a fitting subject for a whole new series of Trim Buchan. I certainly think it deserves it. For it, for it, it is so prescient. Absolutely. But, anyway, but to get us back on track, I should just like to read the paragraph from his memoir with which his description of the conflict begins. The outbreak of war in 1914 found me a sick man. A combination of family anxiety and public activities played havoc with my digestion, and the remedy was either a major operation or a long spell of rest. I was 39 and consequently well over the age of enlistment, and in any case, no recruiting office would accept me. So I went to bed for the better part of three miserable months, while every day brought fresh news of the death of my friends. In the spring of 1915, I was convalescent and was able to act as Times correspondent at the front until after the Battle of Luz. Then I was annexed for a short time by the Foreign Office, and in 1916, I was at last commissioned as an officer in the Intelligence Corps and was in France until the early part of 1917, when I was recalled to a post under the War Cabinet. I obtained leave to have the necessary operation and thereafter was engaged in intelligence work until the armistice. This is, frankly, no more than a concise account of the ground we've already covered in our earlier episodes on Buchan's war work, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it is an interesting step-by-step account of the background we've sketched in in the previous episodes. But notice that it says, and Buchan said, almost nothing in his, in, in his account of the war about what he actually did. There's right. really only a single elliptical sentence that it had consisted, I quote, largely in the study of the mind of other nations, unquote. And, of course, he might have included his own nation, the study in the, in the mind of his own nation. And this is as good a brief description, I think, as, we'll, as one would ever find 
of what propagandists do. They're experts in culture, who must work within culture and through it. And from all this, he, he added that he had gained a new intellectual interest in the political and cultural history of different parts of the world, which he carried with him, of course, for the rest of his life. Yeah, he certainly did. He, he had a boundless curiosity, which is one reason why he was so popular with Canadians. But perhaps the main interest to be drawn from Button's chapter on the war in his memoirs is his particular reaction to the conflict. It isn't exactly what you might expect if you had the idea of him as a gung-ho, patriotic imperialist through and through, or indeed had only the Hannay novels, which we have looked at in this series, to go on. Right, yeah, absolutely. The chapter in Memory Hold the Door, concerned with the war, principally concerned with the war, is called Inter Arma, and it's a shortening of a dictum of Cicero's Inter Arma Enim Silentes Legem, which translates as, in time of war, the law is silent. Buchan saw the war, always horrific, that, that had now pushed beyond civilization's boundaries. This is the picture he gives in the chapter. The loss of intimate friends and members of his own family was unbearable, but beyond that, he saw the subjection of the individual to a huge impersonal machine, intolerable pressure on vulnerable personalities and on people in middle age who, as I quote, saw the shattering of the house of life they'd made for themselves and despaired of building another. That, that's the quotation from the book. And the particular horror of the Great War, as we saw from the passage at the beginning of this episode, was in Buchan's eyes the destructiveness of the weapons used in an interconnected world. Buchan ended his chapter on the war in Memory Hold the Door with a description of how, at the armistice, he had collapsed physically. Much of the good done by the stomach operation he had early in 1917 had been undone by the strains and stresses of the last year of the war. He was in his post at the Ministry of Information when the war ended, and he was made responsible for closing the ministry down after the politicians and the newspaper barons had all departed. Didn't he have to get rid of five tonnes of paper? I've never seen the, the figure put upon it, but there was certainly a massive destruction of all the records of, of, of the operation of the Department of Information and then the ministry that followed it, yes. No, no doubt much to the, to the angst of later historians. Absolutely, who've gone into the archives hoping to find massive accounts of, of, of this side of the war and have found only a, a few files. I mean, yeah, almost, almost nothing is there. It's yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, it really is, yeah. And, and it, it might be worth just adding that, that when the Second World War came around and the desire uh, existed then to find out how the whole thing had been done in the First World War, civil servants were dispatched into the archives to find out and came back empty-handed. There was nothing to say. There was a blank, actually a blank sheet, and it all had to be reinvented all over again. As it were. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, um, the constant infighting of wartime Whitehall had undoubtedly taken its toll on him. Feeling Richard Hannay's intense craving for country life, which we noted in our episode on the three hostages, Buchan and his family moved away from London to Ellsfield near Oxford and, quote, 
turned resolutely to private business. He began a programme of writing, which we also looked at earlier in the series, and he withdrew to what he described as an ivory tower, with a prospect over the interwar years based on the experience of the Great War. So, what had he learned? I think three things stand out, and the first was that victory had been won less by genius in the few than faithfulness in the many, as he put it. It had been the work of what he called, in memory hold the door, the plain man. Buchan's admiration for the indomitability of ordinary people was real enough in the trenches and on the home front in the face of hardship and loss the mass of people had shown good humour, loyalty and fortitude. And as director of, of information who thought hard about morale issues, Buchan had reason to know. And for the huge task of post-war reconstruction which had to be faced, he felt, as he wrote Memory Hold the Door, that, that he could confide implicitly in the mass of my own people. And while many of his own class viewed with suspicion the mass democracy which came at the end of the First World War, Buchan welcomed it as a solid basis for the future. Yeah, which just shows how progressive he was, really. And a, yeah. and a second lesson, I think, concerned the alignment of liberal democracy in opposition to autocracy, which emerged out of the war. Buchan's propaganda work had led him to a close study of both communism and Prussianism, and he'd spotted their essential connection, in common opposition, of course, to liberal democracy, long before most other people had. A number of his post-war novels, including Hunting Tower and A Prince of the Captivity, address the threat they posed from their respective position, as it were, from left and right. Yeah. In his memoirs, he observed that, and I quote, men for the sake of security and order were to barter their souls. Ironic atonement was made for feudalism and the centuries of privilege when proud nations fell into abject bondage to inflamed and loquacious peasants. This was a less than flattering <laughs> reference to Hitler and Mussolini. Yes. But his understanding of the totalitarianism which had arisen out of the war made him a stalwart advocate against dictatorship as it began to threaten the stability of European politics in the 1930s. Yeah. Well, I think the final point then concerned literary modernism. Now, Buchan described in Memory Hold the Door how, at the end of the war, literary culture, the common property of all, had been appropriated, as he saw it, by a small clique of writers of poetry, history and fiction, and used for their own purposes. It's one of the most vivid, in a way, parts of the book, I think, a chapter de dealing with all this. He had in his sights T.S. Eliot, uh, Lytton Strachey, and Virginia Woolf, who I, I believe, Ursula, perhaps you can confirm, had been a friend of the Buckens. Yes, yes, she used to used to go and stay at Ellsville. Right, and 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 also, I mean, he he also had in his sights Bloomsbury's many lesser imit imitators. It has to be said, he had a certain a certain respect, in a way, for Lytton Strachey. And and for Gin and for Virginia Woolf, I think particularly as a as a literary critic, um, and and but, James Joyce too, actually, it has to be. Said. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, and and but but these people, 
the, 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 these figures were, as Buck and Sawridge, the clearacy of the modern day. And, and they had therefore responsibilities. Their duty was to exercise a positive influence on opinion. But instead, as he put it in Memory Hold the Door, they ran round their cages in vigorous pursuit of their tales. And Buchan acknowledged that war had brought to the surface horrors which intellectuals could not ignore. Mankind had been revealed, he said, as, and I quote, an overgrown child armed with deadly weapons, a child with immense limbs and a tiny head. So it was a real problem for Buchan that, as he saw it, plain folk, I quote, setting themselves sturdily to rebuild their world, unquote, got no help from the interpreting class, who instead, again quoting, plumed themselves wearily on being hollow men living in a wasteland. A plain reference, I think, to a couple of Eliot's best-known poems. Well, well, absolutely. Of course, Eliot is now revered, but, but certainly looking... For Buchan looking at, at it from the early 20s, well, you know, for even from, you know, the late 30s, he didn't think these people had really helped much in the 20s. I think that's, I even think that, though he marred right. them as, as poets. And, that, 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 and was a, that was his, his view. And, yeah. and it, it's really something, I mean, he was himself, of course, no mean poet. And he yeah. could see, he could see the, the and critic. Come to that, a really yeah. good literary critic as yeah. well, Michael. Yeah. Yes, indeed. He, he could see the, the enterprise, the, the innovation, the value of, of, of poetry as, as, as a sort of way of shaping culture going forward. But still, he felt that there was a responsibility on such people. And one can see how all this could have come out of what he saw uh, as an imbalance in the literary world, could have come out of his study of the mind of the nation. It, it's a kind of propagandist perspective, in a way, this idea of, of literary people having a responsibility. And it's no doubt much too simple, I think, to suggest that his own massive literary output in fiction and history after the First World War was an attempt to correct this imbalance. But it certainly played some part, I think, in his thinking. So, so in this episode of John Buchan Unbound, the last in the current series, we've explored the way Buchan depicted the First World War in his reminiscences, Memory Hold the Door. And we've seen how important the lessons he learned proved to be in interwar Britain. The book was written under the shadow of another world war, no doubt with elements of hindsight. But I hope we've shown how his central beliefs were the direct consequence of his wartime experiences, which, of course, also informed the Hanny novels, which we covered in previous episodes. Well, now, sadly, at last, we do have to wrap this up. So, what can we say in conclusion? One thing is clear. Memory Hold the Door seems to have had a considerable impact on the generation that had endured the First World War and had recently been plunged into the Second. For example, the American president, John F. Kennedy, included Pilgrim's Way on a shortlist of his own favourite books and quoted from it in his speeches. And King George VI also quoted it in his 1943 Christmas broadcast to the nation and the empire, a signal compliment to his late representative in Canada, 
and the book went on selling well for years. There's such a lot of wisdom in it, both about the past and also in predicting the post-war world, which makes it still worth reading, I think, more than 80 years after its publication. John Buckham was a highly intelligent man with very broad sympathies, a fantastic way with words, a deep, if usually unspoken, Christian faith, and a gritty courage in the face of illness, intrigues against him, and a rejection, in a way, of propaganda as a way of communicating politically, which, of course, had been his war work. But he knew that propaganda was vital once war had become an all-out struggle between nations, and the phrase, munitions of the mind, from the First World War, may well have been his. And his Hannay novels, which we have reviewed in previous episodes, were all the more persuasive as propaganda because they were so skillfully written that readers didn't realise that they were being persuaded rather than simply entertained. Yeah. Generally, his efforts and that of his Department of Information were remarkably successful. Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf complained that enemy propaganda in the Great War had been so much more successful than the German effort and had been deployed with amazing skill and brilliant calculation. What an accolade. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and you can see reasons why the Fuhrer might have made this claim, not least because it diverted attention from the military defeat of Germany and also <laughs> would justify the creation of, uh, as, a, as happened, of the unscrupulous propaganda mechanism which supported his own regime yeah. when he came to power. Yeah. I doubt if Buchan relished the compliment. <laughs> But it is an interesting curiosity that he was paid it. <laughs> well, we hope you've enjoyed getting to know more about John Buchan and the Great War through his works. This is what we've been focusing on over the episodes of this podcast. We've wanted to show you hidden sides to this fascinating man, and we hope we've succeeded. It's been a lot of fun for us, and we've learned a great deal on the way as well. Yes, we certainly have. So, thank you to our producer, Will. And thanks again to the John Buchan Society. Will there be future episodes of John Buchan Unbound? We certainly hope so. There's so much to say about other aspects of John Buchan. But goodbye for now, and thank you so much for listening. Yes, goodbye for now. <laughs>